3: The other day, I was watching the TV show, The Crown. It's a Netflix drama about the life of Queen Elizabeth II. You know, the current Queen of England. And the scene I was watching was set in February 1960. The Queen was preparing to give birth to her third child while reclining in bed, wearing a pink nightgown. Cars of doctors and nurses roll into Buckingham Palace. And I'm nodding along like, okay, Queen's into home birth. And then they give her the shot.
0: Some twilight sleep, ma'am Thank you.
3: Oh, twilight sleep. I've heard of that. The nurses draw the curtains. The queen slowly closes her eyes. The camera lens blurs. And here, in contrast to the politeness of the proceedings, the modern viewer knows what's about to happen. Childbirth. You know, amniotic fluid, nausea, bruising, tearing. It's no tea time. You're left to imagine what's happening to the queen's body while she lies there, not fully conscious. Her husband holds his cigar in the next room, cut to metal forceps. The queen's eyes remain closed. Her baby takes its first little breath. The
0: new prince will be second in line to the throne and was born weighing seven
2: pounds and three ounces. Name is expected to be announced.
3: This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi, and today on the show, we're going to hear how Twilight Sleep wasn't just fit for a queen. It was used for 50 years. And, similar to the effects of the drug cocktail, it's the thing we've elected to forget. Which is crazy because this was the mainstream way to give birth in America for a long time. I'm sure some of our listeners gave birth this way. My own grandma, gave birth this way. We'll hear more from her about that experience later on in the episode.
1: You said you always got the, what is it called, like the night? Scopolamine. Scopolamine. Demerol and scopolamine, I think, was the formula. But basically, I don't remember anything about it. They drug you out.
3: Drugging women out for childbirth? I always thought that doctors must have started this. Doctors who wanted to get home in time for the pot roast, wanted to hear less moaning and groaning from the little ladies. But it turns out, women were the ones who pushed this on their doctors. Doctors who knew the risks, who knew that there would be deaths, but eventually gave in. Randy Hatter Epstein is a medical writer and journalist, a mother to four. And even though she had relatively easy experiences with childbirth, she became drawn to the history of birthing practices because it's a gray zone in medicine.
4: Most of medicine is based on you telling your story to someone, hoping that they are going to listen, hoping that they have clinical judgment, and then getting the right advice. Or telling them, "Mm, maybe that's not what I want to do, but molding it to fit your lifestyle. And when I was searching around for fields that really best utilized that sort of gray zone in medicine thing, to me, childbirth and obstetrics. Because you're not sick. When you're really sick, if you have cancer or you're hurting, I don't care how smart you are, you go to a doctor and you're just like... Great, take me out of my pain. Great, whatever you say. But you're a healthy woman who's not in pain, who wants to get pregnant or just became pregnant. You have so much more agency to say, look, this is the way it's been done in my family. This is the way I plan on doing it. It might not go according to your plans, but you have more agency. So I was very interested in those dynamics of powerful women and powerful doctors, sometimes male doctors, sometimes female. But I was very interested in that relationship. And what can go right and what can go wrong, often depending on communication, not just medical advances.
3: We met where she teaches at Columbia University. Students pushing through hallways, a class being taught next door. It's hard to notice all that while we nerded out about the history
4: of Twilight Sleep. Who was Charlotte Carmody? Uh, so Charlotte Carmody was a woman who went over to Germany to have a, her child in 1914. Why Germany? Because she was wealthy enough to get there, and she had read about that if you go to Germany, childbirth is just wonderful. She had found out through her other rich friends, I guess, when they were doing lunch or whatever, that unlike in American hospitals, or a lot, actually in 1914, a lot of women then were giving birth at home. If you were wealthy enough, you did not go to the hospital. So, but unlike the way things were in America, if you went to Germany, it was like being in a spa. And you got to go to this wonderful spa retreat, and you basically stayed there and were well fed and well taken care of. And then they knocked you out. And the next day, they handed you your baby. And that was it. And you didn't have to remember a thing. And it fascinated Charlotte. So she went over. She left her three children in Brooklyn with her nanny and husband. And she went over to Germany and spent at least a month, maybe more, because the time that it took to get there. And you didn't have your exact due date. And you wanted to be there. And then she came back, along with a few other women who went. They wrote an article based on their knowledge of what went on during childbirth. And I'll just repeat that they were completely out of it during the childbirth experience. So even though she was giving birth, her firsthand knowledge was not that great. And she didn't write it, but she told other two journalists, wrote an article Basically, raving about this new painless way of giving childbirth. Healthier for you, healthier for the children. So, journalists who reported back in the day
3: on Twilight Sleep painted this really rosy picture of the process. Some of the headlines from your book include Painless Childbirth, Lifting the Curse of Eve, Twilight
4: Sleep is Necessary, Not Luxury, Drug Boon to Women. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, my fascination is. Before we even get to the part that this was a dangerous way to give birth, before we get to the part of what drugs were these women taking, before we get to the part that it actually was a painful mode of birth, not painless, but before we even get to that, why were these women who considered themselves feminists in the 19-teens demanding not to remember childbirth? And again, it goes back to that doctor patient relationship. About this time, women were going to doctors and saying, This is really painful. I'm afraid of giving birth. I'm worried about the pain. And doctors were just saying, You know, you want to be a mom, (laughs) you better be able to survive childbirth because you're not going to be able to survive motherhood. And this is what's been going on for years, and we don't have safe alternatives, which was true. But the way the doctors expressed this, the women found so paternalistic that they were that much more encouraged to do exactly what the doctor was saying not to do. And the more doctors said, you're making the wrong mistake, you don't understand... The more they were annoyed with that condescending attitude and decided, no, this is what we want. In a moment, we'll get to this interesting feminist movement. But up until that point, what other resources did women have for dealing with pain during childbirth? In the 1850s, or starting in 1847, ether was used. And basically, you know, you'd put this, you'd soak a rag, or one woman apparently was smoking it, and you'd, you'd get knocked out with ether. Now, which was okay if you were given the right dose, but we weren't good at dosing things. Generally, it was thought of as a cop-out to motherhood. Eve suffered the pain of birth it was sort of a, it was a christian thing that you should suffer pain in birth and then it became a cultural thing that this is something that a, a woman should be able to do without copping out and getting pain relief something that i think still filters through our society today but in 1847 when queen victoria got ether That's sort of green-lit. If it's good enough for the queen, it's good enough for us. And here in America, the second wife of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the poet, was given ether. And actually, her doctor refused, but she knew that her dentist was using it. So she got her dentist to come to her delivery room, and I think she smoked it until she sort of felt a little woozy. Of course, along the way, we also tried other things. Let's see. Opium was used. All different sorts of herbs were used to try to relieve women of their pain. Cocaine, quinine, nitrous yes. oxide. Nitrous oxide laughing gas is still used today, I think. At least it was when I was giving birth in, in 1993 in London. Nitrous oxide was one of the things that you could use, and they put a gas mask on you. Um, Did you take them up on it? <laughs>
3: A little bit, a little bit. If you guys want to join me for a quick sidebar here, nitrous oxide is still popular in Europe and increasingly also in the U.S. In 2011, nitrous oxide gas equipment started to be reintroduced to delivery rooms. It'd gone out of vogue in the 70s with the popularity of the epidural. And you know, these days, it's hard to imagine what it would have been like to walk into a hospital and not be given help with the pain of childbirth. Back in the roaring 20s, it would have seemed like your dentist was better equipped for helping with pain. If only babies came out of root canals, not vaginal canals. Which is why women were so thrilled to hear stories of this marvelous new German method that presented childbirth like a boozy night out. What a dream. Women wanted twilight sleep to come to America
4: we call it the first wave feminist movement they were fighting to the right for the right to vote these were flappers these were women that were going out and bobbing their hair and smoking cigarettes and saying we should vote we should get out and party we can smoke a cigarette we can wear skinny little coco chanel dresses we can go out and have a good time and we're just as smart as men and they didn't just take this lightly as a way of childbirth this became there were parades women held Parades through some of the shopping centers where the women wealthy enough to have twilight sleep, because you had to be able to afford a doctor to either go to Germany or the few that started doing it in the States, you had to be able to afford to go to them. But they paraded through these Lord and Taylors and some of the other shops with their babies, basically saying, look how healthy I am, look how healthy my baby is. This isn't even just the feminist way to give birth, it's the healthier way to give birth.
3: At the time, most doctors didn't want any part of this. They were concerned that the childbirth drugs had side effects. The same drugs had been used in the U.S. for other procedures. So they knew the drug could depress nervous centers, suspected it would lead to diminished uterine contractions, and mixed with morphine could cause hallucinations and psychosis in their patients. But they shared these fears the wrong way. In 1920, in the first edition of the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, One doctor wrote, I've often wondered whether nature did not deliberately intend women should be used up in the process of reproduction in a manner analog to salmon who die after spawning. Let's just sit on that idea for a moment while we listen to this calming nature documentary.
1: Even after spawning, the cycle is not quite complete. Salmon carcasses have more to give food for the forest, for predators, and even for insects, which will in turn nourish their fry, a legacy for the next generation.
4: The feeling was that industrialized women, meaning rich New York City women, rich Boston women, because of the kind of lives they lead indoors, not on the farm, getting everything done for them, their servants make dinner for them, all they do is sit around and have lunch or watch their kids have piano lessons, that their bodies have sort of just lost any sort of fortitude. So there was this thinking, well, yeah, maybe for those women, they actually can't endure the pain of childbirth. So it's it was this funny, weird dichotomy going on that on the one hand there were these doctors saying, yeah, you're so weak, we will give you pain meds, and these women who thought they were so strong saying, yeah, sure, bring it on, and so they were in cahoots with doctors that had a very different view of their own bodies. I love wondering what I would have done. Like, what would you do? It's
3: modern day, 100 years after first-wave feminism and you're out to brunch with some friends. One of them's reading on her phone, and she says, Did you just see this box explainer about this new drug in Europe? Where you go through a hallucinogenic birthing experience, and you totally forget everything. They just hand you a healthy baby. It's called Twilight. And according to this article, this just isn't a priority for our healthcare system. It's held up in approval and testing. Ugh. When it comes to women's health, things never get the Viagra treatment. And then my friend would take a swig of her drink and whisper, You know, here in America, many of our elected officials still believe that childbirth pain is a holdover punishment for Eve's original sin. For never getting the Twilight pill. In that scenario, I think I'd pay the check, throw on my pink pussy hat and take to the streets, demanding Twilight. And that's what first-wave feminists kind of did back in 1915.
4: We can definitely sympathize, I think, with the women that were doing that, and I think we can understand that, yes, when you're told, don't do it, no, you can't do this, you can't help but say, why not? I'm going for it.
3: In a moment, the feminist crusade for pain relief comes through, and Twilight Sleep is sticking around into the 1960s. But... Should we miss it? Is it one of those retro fads like canning or knitting that we can find old-timey wisdom in and start a local movement to revive? Yeah, no. It turns out Twilight Sleep, in its heyday, got a lot uglier than I'd ever realized. We're going to tell you all about it in a bit.
0: Say advertisement. Advertisement.
2: And
3: we're back with medical writer Randy Hutter Epstein. So the feminist movement worked with an assist from some fake news, lots of articles written by female journalists who never witnessed the births, interviewing women who couldn't remember the births. Because remember, Twilight Sleep refers to the drugs we gave women that left them in this in-between state.
4: So these women were given a mix, and in the 1920s, they were given a mix of scopolamine and morphine. Morphine, we know now, and a lot of doctors knew then, if you get the dose wrong, and this is the days before they were really accurately dosing things, you can stop breathing. You can die. And there were doctors writing letters to newspapers saying and trying to tell people this can be is potentially dangerous. But again, the more doctors said that, the more women thought, oh, they just don't want to deal with the hassle of twilight sleep. So... So again, it wasn't convincing to women. But let's go back. So scopolamine and morphine, they it wasn't anesthesia. Anesthesia is the word that means you're completely unconscious, feel no pain. These women got a mix of what we say is amnesia and analgesia from the drugs. What does that mean? So they were a little bit of their pain, analgesia. They were numbed a bit. But amnesia, they forgot about it. So that was the big thing. So we know the women were in pain because when we finally got to see what was going on in the twilight sleep rooms, women were thrashing about. It kind of made them go a little crazy, these drugs. So not only were they in pain, but they were going hysterically thrashing about, so much so that the doctors would blindfold the women so they didn't see, and they started tying them down like with rags or with some sort of cuffs to the to the hospital bed, so so they wouldn't hurt themselves. They were worried some of the women were knocking their head into the bars of the bed, and so they'd wake up all bruised. So the doctors started, either they have, you can see in pictures, they had this little straitjacket they put women in, so they wouldn't knock themselves, or they tied them down to the bed. But again, there was amnesia, so they forgot about, well, the women didn't know, they were out of it enough that they didn't know that they were strapped down. And then they forgot about that whole experience. We have a photo with us right now that we can even look at of these kind of early jackets. And you can see that there's also even an eye covering. This looks like if your kid were going to dress up as someone in some god-awful state-run psychiatric ward in some weird horror film. And then she's in your white hospital gown, but then her arms, it looks like there's like a big U from one arm to the next. So her two hands are attached as if they're holding a basket, but they're all wrapped up. So she has no, she can't move her arms. Then what they do is they put her in bed, she couldn't get herself in, and then they'd wrap her, tie her to the bed.
3: Another image that gets really stuck in my mind from this time is that they built these custom cages
4: metal like metal cribs for women yeah and that that again because they were well there were some instances of women you know rolling over not you know knocking themselves out of bed but it really was such an infantile way if you think about of giving birth that the feminists were demanding which is which is fascinating how effective was the amnesia from this How much would women actually forget? They did forget the whole thing. And, you know, an interesting thing, and and the women did have a point here. Some of the women, there, there were a lot of journalists, feminist journalists that were writing about it, and their response was, I don't care if you tell me that this was painful because I forgot it. And actually, then, what is pain? If I forgot the pain, was I really ever in it? And so they kind of have a point. If you're out of it, And you don't remember these hours that you're in pain. And you can just look back and say, as they did, one moment I went to sleep and the next moment the doctor handed me my baby, was I in pain? I mean, that gets into a philosophical question then.
3: The main feature of twilight sleep was never pain relief. It was always the amnesia. And that came from scopolamine. I started to think a lot about this drug that makes you forget and why we don't hear about it anymore. There's actually a video about scopolamine, put out by Vice and shot in South America, where the drug grows wild.
2: Welcome to Bogota, Colombia. We're here chasing after the most dangerous drug in the world, Burundanga. Burundanga is the source of scopolamine, which is basically like the worst roofie you can ever imagine, times a million.
3: The documentary talks to a drug dealer, who says just blowing some of the white scopolamine powder into a victim's face will not only make them forget everything that follows, but make them highly susceptible to your suggestions, like a human zombie. They say it steals your soul. The documentary interviews one victim who woke up on a park bench, walked to his apartment, and the doorman told him, you were here last night with a bunch of people and you helped them pack up all your belongings. None of you seemed drunk. He emptied his bank accounts for them. At the end of the video... The vice journalists, in a very unvicely fashion, decide not to try the drug. It's just too dangerous.
4: Like When I first got here, I was, like, super interested in it, and it was, like, this novelty thing, and I've heard enough stories, man, that it's not funny at all.
3: We gave women low, low doses of this drug for generations. And a lot of us didn't see the problems, the psychosis, the hallucinations, the lack of inhibitions, because what happened in twilight sleep stayed in twilight sleep, with a few exceptions. Remember Charlotte Comedy, who was so inspired by her birth experience in Germany.
4: She was parading. She became the president of what was the National Twilight Sleep Association. And these this was the Astors and the Vanderbilts and a lot of very connected women who would go around and they were raising money because they would... They would elicit young doctors and say, we'll help pay your salary, we'll raise money, we'll help try to get a maternity ward if you'll give birth our way. And then Charlotte was pregnant with her fifth child and she died in childbirth. We don't know exactly what happened. Her husband said to the New York Times the next day, this has nothing to do with twilight sleep. Her neighbor, a Miss Olson, started, was so appalled that Charlotte died, was so upset by it, that soon thereafter she initiated the Anti-Twilight Sleep Association. What were the actual effects of the drugs on the childbirth process? Up until really The 50s and 60s, there was the feeling that the placenta was a placental barrier. And that's what they were called at the placental barrier. Now, of course, there was always like the few lone voices saying, maybe not. (laughs) Maybe it's not a complete barrier. But if you think about it in the 50s and 60s, you know, if you look at old movies, women were smoking, they were drinking gin and tonics. And the feeling that most doctors felt, that a lot of women felt, was that the placenta was this wonderfully natural thing that allowed nutrients to pass through and would not allow any toxins to pass through. By the 1960s, when Queen Elizabeth
3: took the shot, the science of Twilight Sleep dosing had improved, and around it had grown an entire field of obstetrics to accommodate the demands.
4: But as things do, one, it became the norm. Why? Well, because more people were giving birth in hospitals. I think it was easier for doctors to deliver a baby from a knocked out woman than from a woman sitting there going, when's this baby going to be born? Oh, my God, I don't know if I can take the pain. You know, you don't want this continuing dialogue with this woman. And so I think from a doctor's perspective, it was easier to have a woman flat on her back, which isn't really what we did historically, but flat on her back, legs up and spread. It it sort of made it easier for the doctor. What did we do historically? Historically, if you go way back, there were um, birthing stools. And if you go back into even now Native American culture, there were things called a birthing stool that looked like a stool with a big hole in the middle so that the baby could come out. But gravity would allow the baby to come out that way. But then whoever was helping you, the midwife, would be under there catching the baby. So it's more convenient for you, perhaps, but it's not as easy for the person who's in charge of catching the baby.
3: In May 1958, there was an expose published in Ladies Home Journal titled Cruelty in Maternity Wards. It was a true scandal at the time, the first time people saw the procedure in full light through the eyes of the nurses who assisted One woman said, they give you the drugs whether you want them or not. Another nurse wrote, I've seen patients with no skin on their wrists from fighting the straps. Another woman wrote in, I have heard such unthinking remarks as, you've had your fun, now you can suffer. Just as twilight sleep started as a result of women's raised voices,
4: that's also how it ended. I think looking back on what it was is very much what it is now. I think a lot of our decisions have to do with the trust and faith that we have in our doctors or midwives, people that are helping us with childbirth. A lot of this searching to figure out the best way, and if you look at the language that the the doctors were using in the 1920s, sometimes they were pretty accurate when they said morphine is dangerous, but the way they said it was... You don't know what you're talking about. We know. Don't go to Germany. Don't give birth Twilight Sleep. And women don't want to hear that. We want to be informed and we want to make decisions.
3: Twilight Sleep was slowly phased out in the 60s and 70s as second-wave feminists asked for more agency in the delivery room, along with so many other places. The arrival of the epidural also helped. Randy Epstein is the author of Get Me Out, A History of Childbirth from the Garden of Eden to the Sperm Bank. And she has a new book coming out this summer all about hormones called Aroused. When we get back a special treat, my grandma Phyllis. She's going to share insight into the pain of childbirth.
1: There's no man could tolerate the pain. That we women are made of
3: tougher stuff. But even she asked for Twilight Sleep. Her
0: stories in a bit. (laughs) <laughs> Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze. And it felt a little like... <laughs> Time to go. Oh. Okay, kids. Back in the room.
1: You gotta come It has to be like
0: Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western.
2: The Volvo XC60 Recharge Plug-In Hybrid is about performance. Not just on the road, but in life. With not only trunk space, but room to make memories. It's electric with a backup plan where the only speed that matters is how fast you can slow down. The Volvo XC60 Recharge Plug-In Hybrid. Performance where it matters the most. Visit volvocars.com slash us to learn more.
3: (laughs) We're back. So I used to host another podcast called YOY. And on there, I would often call up my grandma for advice. She loved being on the show. And I still have that impulse now that I'm with you guys at the longest, shortest time. The last September, she passed away. She was 87 years old. And now my version of reaching out to her involves digging up old recordings. Here's a phone call. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah? This one's from four years ago.
1: I, it's hard to describe. Uh, sometimes... I feel that I,
3: I'm i irrelevant. She just posted something to Facebook about how lonely she was feeling.
1: I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I just get these bouts every now and then of uh, feeling sorry for myself.
3: And I was having a hard day, too. I'd gone to a doctor with a good Yelp review to get an IUD. And it took too long. It hurt too much. I called the whole thing off, went home, put a warm water bottle on my belly and called my grandma.
1: You'll just have to practice slightly more responsible sex. Uh, You will uh, have to keep taking the pill. Mm -hmm. I assume you've been taking the pill.
3: Yeah, and I don't some women have problems with it, but I haven't ever really had a problem with the pill. I just
1: liked the idea of less hormones in my body. But yeah, I do too. Uh but un- when you think you're ready to try an IUD again, talk to me. She knows a the guy. There are always horror stories about everything. For the main though, it, uh, the statistics are in favor of an IUD. They work. They certainly worked in my case, but that's only an individual situation. Did you have a copper one? I don't know what
3: I had. This is you know, a thousand years ago. Because I haven't had kids, the most painful part of getting an IUD for me was the process of having the depth of my uterus measured with a sounding device. Had to find its way through my cervix somehow. And that specific kind of pain, everyone told me it was a little itty-bitty taste of childbirth. So on that day, I was wondering, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And you don't remember um, childbirth pains? Oh, Because yeah. they just gave you the, the sleeping, the sleeping
1: drug? No. No, it wasn't quite that simple. Oh. They don't give it to you right away. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I <I'll, laughs> I I don't think I. <laughs> I don't think I want to have kids now. After this appointment, I think I'm not tough enough. Because you can't, like, I was able to turn back with the, with the IUD. I was able to say, nope, stop. But with a kid, you could never say, nope, stop. This stop. Well, I would tell you that after my first child, I said, I will never do this again. And then you forgot. And then I had two more. Okay, I guess that helps. It is true. They use drugs. But they um, use drugs for your
3: first one, too. You said you always got the, what is it called, like the night?
1: Scopolamine. Scopolamine. Demerol and scopolamine, I think, was the formula. But by the time they gave it to me, I was pushing her out already, practically.
3: At the time we were talking, I'd just seen another example of twilight sleep, television. Betty Draper gives birth in season three of Mad Men, and the scene was designed to feel like a hallucinogenic trip. Betty was shaved, given an enema, and a shot of twilight sleep. While Don's nursing a bottle in the waiting room, she's calling out for him.
2: Where's Don? He's in the waiting room. It's never where you expect him to be.
3: Mr. Demerol, 25 milligrams.
1: Basically, I don't remember anything about it. They drug you out.
3: So, I'd been wondering if my grandma had similar, trippy, swirly memories of that fugue state.
1: After your mother was born, I don't know if I ever told you this story, they didn't bring me to her right away. Bring her to me.
3: With all I've learned about Twilight Sleep, it changes the way I hear this next story. It's a family classic, but It makes a little more sense if you imagine her alone in a hospital bed coming down from all these drugs.
1: And uh, the nurses said, well, they'll bring it to you on the next shift. The next shift came along, and they weren't bringing me my baby. And I'm thinking, there's something wrong with my baby. Where is my baby? I'm supposed to be seeing my baby. And finally, they bring the baby to me, and it was the ugliest-looking thing I'd ever seen in my life. (laughs) that's my mom she was a mess (laughs) and i'm thinking oh my god i have this beautiful little girl at home how am i going to deal with one beautiful child and one ugly child this is really going to be a challenge
3: (laughs) for the record my mom did turn into a cute baby and she's still a total babe
1: The worst part of it was I spent all those hours all alone. Really? All alone. They didn't allow husbands in.
3: The word natural, when paired with childbirth, is defined by everyone in their own way. For my grandma Phyllis, she didn't mind the drugs. She never felt like she missed out on some important experience of womanhood. For her... What felt so wildly unnatural was leaving my grandpa out in the waiting room. She wanted him there. By the time her third kid was born, my Uncle Howard, in 1959, this was after the Ladies' Home Journal expose, and my grandpa was finally let in.
1: And apparently at one point he practically passed out. (laughs) I heard them calling for a chair... (laughs) and so he could sit down. Something like that.
2: (laughs) Ugh,
3: guys, I miss her. People, did you or someone in your family give birth with twilight sleep? Let's gather up some stories and do our own longest-shortest time oral history. You can comment on our website, longestshortesttime.com. This show is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Kristen Clark. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. We were edited this week by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Carum and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by Hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next week on the show, NPR's longtime counterterrorism correspondent, Dina Temple-Raston. She's going to tell us how she went into a recent interview with a teenage boy.
2: And I said, guess what I have in this bag? And he said, what? And I said, two New York pizzas. Have you ever had one? And he goes, no, I've only ever had Pizza Hut. And I said, Your life is about to change.
3: We also want to lure some teenagers into the fold of this show. We actually want to gather up a panel of them to give our parent listeners advice. And here's what we can offer in exchange obviously, the chance to hang out with us, but also, it is amazing the doors that pizza opens up. We'll feed them. Send us. You're precocious. You're ornery. You're temporarily misguided. You're someday will be the boss of all of us, teenagers. Also, I just want to see what's on their Spotify so I can finally be cool. Head to longestshortesttime.com. Hit the participate tab and submit your teenagers and stories. We we love those too.
4: So you think Logan's a good person? I do. Came here because I was running, okay. running from myself.
0: Okay, please. But I'm not gonna run again. I promise. Maybe he's good then.
4: No, 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 no! I'm one of the good guys. Or maybe not. <laughs> Marvel and Stitcher present Wolverine: The Long Night. Out now. Only on Stitcher Premium. For one month free, go to Wolverinepodcast.com and use promo code Marvel.
1: Stitcher. I say it. Okay. Da
2: The Volvo XC60 recharge plug-in hybrid is about performance. Not just on the road, but in life. With not only trunk space, but room to make memories. It's electric with a backup plan where the only speed that matters is how fast you can slow down. The Volvo XC60 Recharge Plug-In Hybrid. Performance where it matters the most. Visit volvocars.com us to learn more.